This is Growing Agri People, a podcast to inspire, power, and celebrate people of agriculture. Brought to you by Sally Murphy of Inspire Ag, who believes the power of agriculture is in its people. Each episode connects you with people and ideas to help you grow your human capital. In this episode, we're going to hear from a guy called Cam Nicholson from Nikon Rural Services based in Geelong, Victoria. Cam's pretty well known in the ag industry due to his involvement with farmer programs for organisations like Grains Research and Development Corporation, MLA, Dairy Australia, Southern Farming Systems and Landcare. He lectures at the Marcus Oldham Ag College on animal and pasture systems, as well as running a 400-hectare beef and sheep farm on the Bellarine Peninsula with his wife Fiona. I first met Cam back in March, where we both spoke at the GRDC Farm Business Update events at Swan Hill and Bendigo. And back then, we started a bit of a conversation about decision-making, and I wanted to finish it off, so invited him to be a guest on the podcast so that you could benefit from the conversation as well. In my own consulting business, I've been thinking a lot lately about decision-making and how to help clients make stronger tactical or operational decisions. And I think this is really important, particularly in ag, because there's so many moving parts, the weather, markets, people, finance, production, just to name a few. Some people, though, seem to have a really good knack for making decisions, and while others, well, the only decision that they make is to not make one at all. But I think I've made a pretty good decision in asking Cam to join us today, but I will let you be the judge of that. Cam Nicholson, thanks so much for joining me on the Growing Agri People podcast. Yeah, pleasure, Sally. Before we dive in today, Cam, perhaps you could uh, help the, the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Let What's your first memory of agriculture? When I was a young kid um, going rabbit shooting with my dad, um, I didn't actually grow up on a farm, but my both my parents were, but they were big families on small farms. And so some people had to move and we moved to Melbourne. And so I was born in Melbourne, but went back to uncles and aunts that had farms. So um, yeah, from a very early age, I enjoyed agriculture. So somewhere along the way, agriculture has chosen you or you have chosen it, one or the other. How long have you been involved with agriculture now? Oh, consulting-wise and professionally, just over 30 years. Um, so I started about 1985 with the Victorian Department of Agriculture and did ag science before that. understand you're an agronomist by training. What space do you find yourself occupying mostly at the moment, Cam? Uh, yeah, my career has been a moving feast, I suppose. As you said, I, I started off in agronomy and soils in northern Victoria, mainly when um, salinity was a big issue in the, the mid-late 80s and early 90s. And I've sort of just progressed into farm management type agronomy, so expanding more into whole farm businesses. Um, and yeah, really got interested over probably the last 10 or 15 years that when I was dealing with individual farming businesses, just how... Some businesses always seem to make you know, good decisions at the right time. They just had this knack of, of of doing it better than others. And it wasn't because they had more rainfall or, you know, greater equity or they were just lucky. It's just the way they managed their businesses. And I got really fascinated by, you know, what were the elements that some people could do that other people didn't do quite as well. So the flavour of our discussion today is based around managing risk through effective decision making. It seems reasonable to ask, Cam, 
Was it a good decision to choose agriculture? Uh, I think it is. You know, it pays you back in spades just in the type of work that you can do and the satisfaction you can get from it. We farm um, just out of Geelong as well. We farm about a thousand acres just on a small place that we've built up since my wife and I got married about 30 years ago. And I just, I love everything about farming. I love growing good produce. I love being out in the environment. I love being my own boss. There's lots of other, you know, there are things about farming that I really, really love. Also taking into account though, there's a lot of risk in it and therefore making good decisions is a critical part about running a an efficient, profitable and sustainable business, you know. So that's where the decision making for me comes into it. It's not just technical knowledge, it's how I apply that at the right time to make the right choices. You've been talking about decision making for for quite a, a while now, doing a little Google search. You can see that it's been a topic that's occupied your thoughts for a while. What's your interest in this discipline? Can you go into that a little bit deeper for us? I was doing some work in a program called Grain and Graze, which is a mixed farming program that started about 20 years ago. And one of the, the key elements in that when we ask farmers about how do you work out the balance of how much crop and livestock you have in a business, they said, oh, it's all about managing risk. And so when I started exploring that, I thought, well, how do you analyse that risk in a business and you know, what tools do we use and how well are we providing information as advisors or as an industry to people to understand risk so that they can make good decisions? And what flowed on then from the risk was this whole thing around decision-making and how people process that that information. But I really started off in the, the risk side of it and um, just, yeah, looking at what do we pump out, what do we give people as far as information and talk to them about and how well do we convey risk. And the bottom line was I didn't think we did it very well. So there was great opportunity to improve in an industry which is highly risky. So risk in, in agriculture is almost an accepted standard, I, I think. We have highly geared businesses, volatile production systems, unpredictable market conditions, yet some of us have trouble deciding on what we're even going to have for lunch today. Do you think there are some of us that are better at making decisions than others? Uh, some people, I think their their skill and the, the process they use might be a bit better. Um, but I'm a firm believer that everybody can learn to be a good decision maker. It's a process that you need to apply. Uh, it's a skill and you can practice it, and you, you can learn it and you can become better at it. And one of the key things in making good decisions is understanding the risk. And importantly, risk has got both a downside and an upside. And I think most people who said, oh, what's the risk of that? People just think about what could go wrong. So what's the downside? What could I lose? Um, you know, what could be the problems associated with it? But we've also got to realise that there's an upside. And in agriculture and in farming, you've really got to balance how much risk am I willing to take on to try and reduce some of the downside, but at the same time be in a position to capture the upside. So, you know, you can be, for example, conservative in your stocking rate um, so that when you do get dry periods or droughts or whatever else, you either have less animals to feed or your feed lasts longer. But when you get a real cracker of a season, and prices are pretty good. If you don't have the livestock on, then you're foregoing some of that potential opportunity. And I remember my economics lecturer at university always said, you know, there's no reward without risk. And in farming, risk is a necessary part of taking, uh, making returns. If we want to make a profit, then we do need to take some risk on. What I found was interesting, though, is when I asked people to actually put the odds around that, so you could frame the odds around the risk of it, 
and where do you get that information? We were pretty lacking in agriculture. And I think it's sort of an indictment on the whole industry that we're expecting farmers to make those sort of decisions. But when you look at most of the information we put out, it's all around averages. You know, and averages tell you nothing about risk. I know for me personally, Cam, when I tend to make decisions, even the life-changing ones, often they're based on the heart and the gut. And I'm, I'm not saying that I don't use the head by any means, far from it. But do you think that there's some, some differences in perhaps personalities in how people make decisions? There's certainly temperament differences in that. So what you're referring to is a, what I've written about a bit called the head, heart and gut in decision-making and how that influences decisions. So your head, basically the facts and figures, the calculations you do, that sort of thing. Uh, the heart being more your values, your beliefs, your preferences, um, some of the biases that you have. And your gut really is that you know past experience and your intuition. And quite often we've got to use the heart and gut when we can't find the facts. So if the information isn't there and easy for us to find to do those calculations or to do those calculations and work stuff out is really difficult. Our fallback position is often, well, what worked in the past? What's our experience been in the past? And do I like that or not like it? And if I don't like it, my preference will probably be that I'll make a, you know, make a decision or choose not to, to pick up practice A as opposed to practice B that I'm comfortable with and I have a degree of comfort about what the outcome might be. I think all three of them are really important. Now, your question around personality or temperament is that different temperaments rely more heavily or on one or more of those three elements, the head, heart and gut. Uh, so some people are very much head-based people and they're the ones that will always tell you, just stick to the facts. What do the facts say? What's my return on investment? Um, and then you'll have other people that almost put what's the return on investment as secondary to will I find this enjoyable? Will it be pleasurable? Um, how will this affect other people in my business and so on. So different temperaments will come at a different angle. I think what's really important though is the best decision makers that I've seen have within their teams when they're making these decisions people that can contribute to all three parts of it. And I think they're the ones when I look at them. Now, that team might be other people in their business, their farming business. So it might be other family members. It might be other workers they've got. Or it could be people they bring in from outside. So it might be the accountant or the advisor um, or the agronomist or whatever it might be, depending on that decision. But they have different people with different strengths around that head, heart and gut. And by combining all three, I reckon that helps make better decisions. We've all had to, to deal with the impact of a decision when it's gone pear-shaped. What's your advice for building the muscle or perhaps even the courage to make the next one? Yeah, re really good question. Um, two aspects to it I'll, I'll mention. Um, one is that I always separate out the difference between a good decision and a right decision. How do you tell the difference? Um, <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So, so to me, a right decision is something you can work out in hindsight. You make a call, you pull the trigger, so to speak, or roll the dice, and then time tells you and the outcome after that period of time tells you whether it was a right decision. Uh, and we all want to make right decisions. Bottom line agriculture is sometimes we get them wrong. So I talk to clients about trying to make good decisions, good timely decisions. Now, a good decision to me is one that's informed. So at that point in time, what information did we have available, head, heart and gut, that we use to, on balance, make a decision or make a call? You roll the dice then, and in hindsight, 
then you can see whether it's a right decision or not. And I've seen clients over time or, or farmers over time that have made a decision and it's gone wrong. And it's that classic, you know, once bitten, twice shy, never going back there again because I tried that once and it didn't work. When in fact, either circumstances are different or at that point in time, there was something they should have considered that they didn't consider before. So if we go back and say what we want to try and do is make good decisions and they're informed ones, roll the dice. If it doesn't work out right, I always say to them, so what did we miss at that point when we had to make the call or make the decision that we will learn from next time? And sometimes there was nothing. There was no indication that, you know, when I sowed this crop, did I know that in August, September, we were going to have severe frosts or October, we were going to have severe frosts or whatever. You couldn't predict that at the time. So if we had our time over again, we'd probably still make the same decision based on the way other things were, were stacking up. In my experience, Cam, when it comes to the people side of, of ag, we tend to look for perhaps template solutions to how we manage our workforce, but we're all different, right? So is it fair to say that the same goes for the way that we individually process a decision? Ah, uh, Yes, yeah. So, you, so you'll have your, what I'd call the default position, which is if you're not conscious of it, this is naturally the way you will make decisions and you will treat all decisions the same way. You'll use the same process. Um, so part of the, the trick to making better decisions or making good decisions is being aware of what's involved in making a good decision and following that process, even if at first it feels uncomfortable or doesn't feel natural to you. But over time, as you learn that skill, and you become comfortable with it, it then becomes second nature. And I've seen people go from very much a, that would make decisions almost one-dimensionally, so to speak, that over time when they've, they've learned some of these new tricks and techniques, then look at it from different dimensions. They've got to force themselves to do it because it's not natural, but as they get better at it, they become more comfortable with it. And at the end of the day, make better decisions as a result, I reckon. What about peer influence in decision-making? i.e. I've made it as a farmer, I've made it a different decision to those that are in my district. How do you think that comes into play? It will influence sometimes how much risk you're willing to take on and how much you're willing to put yourself out there. Unless you're a temperament type that's sort of what I would call a pioneer, someone that's willing to have a go and half the things blow up and everybody sees that but you don't care, um, most people don't like to be seen doing something that's radically different, particularly if it could go wrong and everybody could see it. So it tends to naturally make us a bit more conservative in, in the way we, um, we deal with issues. And, and because of that, we will sometimes miss opportunities. But even when you're going and doing something that might be a little bit outside your comfort zone, just understand the, the risks involved. So this comes back to this whole question of risk. How much risk are we actually playing with? And I've had clients that, that haven't been willing to say, try a new practice. So we've done it on a very small scale. We've done it as a pilot. We've done it as only a paddock or sometimes even just a test strip to start to build that confidence that, yes, this could actually work, even though it's, it's somewhat different. And then over time, we scale that up. So people that might be a little bit more reluctant to, to go in boots and all to start with, I think trialling and test strips and, and small areas um, doing it well, doing it right and seeing the result of it is a really good way to progress when sometimes you might be a bit uh, reluctant to, to want to put it all out there. So say I've got a, a big decision to make, what 
What would you advise me in terms of perhaps decision-making tools or resources? Are there are there any go-tos that you've got? There's there's one that I've um, developed over probably the last decade or refined over the last decade. Um, I first saw from a farmer in South Australia, and I've I've sort of used that type of a process, and I call it the decision matrix. And sometimes when people see the final product of it, they think, oh, that's so obvious and so simple, but the steps involved is sort of that discipline or process that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, and I tend to like it. And I do because there are lots of decisions we have to make in agriculture that are complex. And when you're dealing with complex decisions, the head, the heart and the gut all should be considered in that decision. It's not just what are the facts and nothing else. Complex decisions have a lot more than that. So this process allows the head, heart and gut to be included in it. It also recognises this idea that in complex decisions, never is there just one or two things we need to consider. It's probably a whole suite of things. And usually I find when I'm sitting down with the client and working through this type of thing, there'll be six or eight things that we need to balance up. Some of those, what I call critical considerations, are positives and some of those critical considerations might be negatives or you know, on the downside of, of, of things. So so they're the ones that sort of think, oh, that could be a problem, but this could be a positive. So first thing I do is I get every, get people to say, well, what's the decision we have to make? And then what are those critical factors? And we list those six or eight critical factors because we make decisions on balance. And I'm saying when you've got a complex decision on balance, are there more pros than there are cons or are there more cons than there are pros? That's the way we should be informing that decision before we roll the dice. So I get them to, to list out what those six or eight critical factors might be. We then take each critical factor in turn and think about what would be the best possible result when you'd say, yes, I would absolutely do that. So if I give you an example, um, one I did just recently was about um, a crop that had been frosted and the decision had to be made, do I cut that crop for hay or do I take it through for grain? So I got the farmer to list what those critical considerations were. So he listed things about obviously how much of the crop was frosted, but then also said, but of the bits of frost, the crop that aren't frosted, is there enough moisture to finish that crop? So we looked at how much you know, subsoil moisture was there. So what was the likelihood of that crop finishing? We also looked at the price of hay compared to the price of grain. We also said if we cut it for hay, is there a market that we could sell into so we can get an immediate cash flow? Because not much point cutting it if it's going to take you two years before you sell it and you need the money. Did they have storage sheds? And the last one he came up with, he said, I'd think differently about it if there was, um, say, ryegrass in that paddock and I could start help clean that up in my cropping phase by cutting it for hay and putting it in a bale and selling it off to someone else. So there are a number of considerations, not just how much of that crop is frosted. And then we took each of those critical factors. So let's say for the first critical factor, how much of this crop is going to finish? I said, when would you think differently about it? He said, oh, look, if only 20% of that crop was frosted, I'd still take it through for grain. And then I said, what's the worst possible scenario? He said, well, if about 80% of that crop was frosted, then I'd think differently and I'd favour more cutting it for hay than I would for taking it through for grain. And so for each of those critical factors, we worked out um, where those, what I call those tipping points, where you think differently about your decision is. And then the third part of it is then we take each of those critical factors and we put some values or points on it. 
because uh, the third thing I've learned about these complex decisions is that while there might be multiple factors, not all factors are, are of equal importance. Some might be more important than others. And so somehow we need to put that weighting on which ones are worth more or we should put more emphasis on compared to others. And what that allows is that a whole lot of different uh, critical factors can be included, but they can be weighted on their relative importance to each other. And I can generally build one of those in about 15, 20 minutes, just through a bit of questioning. And then the last step that we go through is to say, okay, if everything got maximum points, so everything was really positive, what decision would you make? And the farmer would say, well, you know, if hardly any of it was frosted, the price of grain is going to be a lot higher than the price of, of hay. Um, I wouldn't have anywhere to store it. There's no hay market and so on. On that basis, you'd say, right, I'll take it through for grain. If it was the exact reverse, where um, not much of it was going to fill, the hay market was really good, you could sell it immediately, it would clean up weed problems, all of those things on the positive, the decision would be, okay, we'll sell that for hay, not take it through for grain. And then we find a, a point where you tip over between uh, what score would we give it to mean that we'd go for grain, what score would we give it to go for hay. And we worked it out and we can then roll that out each year and in each paddock when we've got a frosted crop. So we can use that same decision matrix that we've put together in two different paddocks. One paddock that might only be 50% frosted and not have weeds, you'd make a different decision on that to what you might do in another paddock that might be 70% frosted and it's got lots of weeds in it. So once we build that sort of uh, decision matrix, we can use that time and time again. And at our farm at home, we've got about six or eight of them we're, graze, we're grazing. So we've got cattle and sheep. And we've got about six or eight of those during the year. And every year they come out and we go through and in two or three minutes can give it a score to decide whether we destock, whether we grow more feed over winter, how much we cut for hay, which paddocks we cut for hay. We've got decision, these simple decision matrices set up for all of those. And it just takes the pressure off the decision when you're, you're under stress because you've already thought it out beforehand. And we've found in the long run, helps us make more good decisions than, uh, than bad ones. It's a very long-winded way of, <laughs> of getting to the, the point, sorry, Sally, because it's, it's not hard to, it, it's hard to describe rather than show it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the disadvantages of of you know just having the voice in a podcast. But I think you've done a, a good job of of narrating that through what well I can. And I think what you've what you said there though is you know if you've been farming long enough, the experience will give you some some management points or some rules of thumb. Do you think that good decision making also happens to be influenced by the stage of life? Oh, absolutely. You change the amount of risk you're willing to take on and therefore that changes your decision accordingly. And there's no right position on risk. Risk is very much a personal thing. You tend to find people have a greater appetite for risk and, and having a bit of a punt, so to speak, um, at different stages in their life and what financial position they're in. So it changes not only with age, but also just with circumstance as well. You know, how much debt you've got makes obviously a, a, a big difference. It changes over time. And one thing I like about the matrix is that the critical factors don't change, but the number of points they required to make what might be considered a risky decision, if you're, you want to reduce your area, uh, your level of risk, then those points go up. So in other words, you'd say no to the decision unless lots of things were really in your favour if you want to be a bit more conservative from a risk point of view. And I've seen people that 
used these five, ten years ago, and as they're getting later in their their farming careers, then pull back a bit. So the decision before I go yes to something, which is a bit risky, I need more points. I need more things stacking up in my favour before I'll do it because I simply don't want to gamble with what I've already got and, and take a punt on that. I do some lecturing at Marcus Oldham and quite often you'll see the students here will be far more aggressive in what they'll take a punt on because they, um, depending on their circumstances, are likely to have a 30, 40 year career still to go in farming and so it might be a bit more aggressive from that point of view. If this was the last conversation that you had about decision making, Cam, what would you want people to know? That you can become a better decision maker because it's a skill and it's a process that you can learn. It's not something that some people are gifted that can do and other people can't do. Everybody can do it, everybody can get better at it. It's just a process that you need to follow. Cam Nicholson, I'm so glad I made the decision to have this conversation with you. (laughs) Thank you so much for engaging in the conversation. for one that I hope will help listeners build a stronger, more profitable business. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Sally. Growing Agri People is an Icon Media production for Inspire Ag, hosted by Sally Murphitt with the theme music from Daniel King. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with someone who you think will get some value out of it. And make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode.